be it a trip to the spa. Nice. Tranquil. This is a legit spa, too. It's just what you need before a Mau Mau. <laughs> you need a legitimate spa soundtrack. Gotta center yourself. If I tell any secrets of the Mau Mau, this oath will kill me. If I am called in the night and refuse to come, this oath will kill me. If I see anyone steal white man's property, I must help him. I must hide what he gives me and say nothing, or this oath will kill me. The whole system in this country, the economic system, is such that uh, jobs are scarce. Automation is limiting jobs. It's, it's, it's decreasing jobs. And uh, if autom as automation eliminates the job opportunities, legislation will not create job opportunities. All it will do is bring about friction and hostility between the two races. You, you see, there will be no uh, progressive revival if black uh, folks are not deeply involved in it. I will obey all orders of the Mao Mao, or this oath will kill me. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Mau Mau Hour with the one and only Pascal Robert. I am one of your hosts, along with Pascal's Haitian sister in Mau Mauing, M. Toussaint. Hello, hello, everyone. Jason is also M. Toussaint today. Oh, I didn't change my name. So. No, you didn't. And you know what that means? I don't care. Okay. He is I and I am him. And he, there you go. And I'm every woman. That's all you need to know. All right. Uh, I just also want to shout out Too Short is getting his own street in Oakland. Short dog. In Deep East Oakland is going to have his own street. So shout out to Too Short. Who is also a fan of Bitter Lake? Did you know that? Really? You know, Too Short likes. I don't know if somebody was like controlling his Instagram for a while, but he would like every time we put like live videos of us in, in the studio we were in Soundwave, like working on the material. Cool. I know. Maybe he was yeah. looking for like a new black guitar player. Maybe. Well, let's bring in the man these people really want to see. And also, just so you guys know, uh, the replay of this is not going to be live. This is live for patrons only. So Pascal, if you're unfamiliar with the Mau Mauer, Pascal usually has a topic that he wants to address. Once he addresses it with the crown, he will answer all questions that people have. That's why this is one of the rare occurrences that the chat is on the screen. That being said, if you're ready, let the tranquil music soothe you because here comes the pain. Mother Pain being my good friend coming all the way live from a secret Mau Mauing dungeon in Florida. Please welcome Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings Jason Miles. <clears throat> Peace and greetings. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Just sprinkle in a little bit of misogyny. Yeah. <laughs> Just, I'm teasing. <laughs> free. These aren't the massages you're looking for. Okay. <laughs> Pascal, you have a bone to pick with black america's favorite new son um it looks like hakeem jeffries is the first black person in the history of black people to be the speaker of the house and according to social media and mainstream media and of course all of our black relatives that we're still talking to post thanksgiving this is a great moment for us. 
Are we there, Pascal? Remember that back in the day, people say, we need to get there. Are we there now with Hakeem Jeffries? I think that in the words of my good friend and mentor, Glenn Ford, who said about Barack Obama in a speech that I witnessed uh, early in the Obama campaign, Hakeem Jeffries may represent one of the most dangerous iterations to black politics that we've seen in recent history. That he represents a manifestation of power of capital and the ruling class using the symbolism of race to obscure in the minds of black people that his agenda is one with the enemies of usually poor and working class people who generally make up large segments of the black community. But before I go to Hakeem Jeffries, I wanna talk about this phenomenon that we talk about often on this program called the black political class. And what exactly is it about the black political class that makes it so problematic? As you know, I have mentioned many times in many articles, and one of the main uh, focuses of consternation for the publication I used to write for Black Agenda Report was the Black political class, or what some would call the Black misleadership class. The Black political class is not a new concept within the overall history of Black America. What it is, is that it represents a leadership tier that works at the behest of the ruling class under the charade of racial allegiance to Black America. And because of that charade, denies the capacity of Black people to effectively realize that this class is actually carrying out the agenda of the Lords of Capital instead of actually representing the interests of Black America. Now, what is particularly nauseous about this phenomenon is that because of the way historical segregation and racial oppression has worked within the confines of race as America, it is very rare that you found instances that Black people in America have actually called out their class traitors or class enemies because the fallacy of racial kinship, which is actually an article I've written at Black Agenda Report, you can look up the fallacy of racial kinship by Pascal Robert, is one of the ways in which Black people in the United States are given a kind of veneer of racial solidarity around individuals who oftentimes are not working at their behest. One of the best examples of this was that Clarence Thomas, when he was being considered by the Supreme Court, had an article written defending him in the New York Times under racial kinship grounds by Maya Angelou. Now you would ask, why would Maya Angelou, who was, you know, someone who was left of center, someone even considered radical, write an article defending Clarence Thomas in the New York Times? Surely out of the, the notion that Clarence Thomas was a black man from the South and he understood all pain, she believed that she had the right and the authority to write an article to defend him. The same way Clarence Thomas, even though he's from the right, works at the behest of forces that are antagonistic to the agenda and the benefit of large scales of working class and poor black people. And even though he is at the right, the left flank of capital also produces figures who all, even though they are from the left flank of capital, still are working in accordance with those forces that historically have disadvantaged Black America. 
one of the earliest manifestations that we've talked about the black political class in a singular iteration as we've talked about with Adolf Reed several times and we've mentioned before is Booker T. Washington who at the behest of the Lords of Capital of the North of the South worked to sabotage the colored farmers of Lyons and the interracial coalition between the two with the Atlanta Compromise speech and to forecast his support for Plessy versus Ferguson. But then you ask, what has been the manifestation of this black political class in the 50 plus year counter revolution that has made this current manifestation so dangerous? One of the best ways to sum up why the current manifestation of the black political class has been made so dangerous is this in an article I'm going to share with you that M2, I want to ask M2 to share that was written by my friend and mentor, Glenn Ford, that talks about how in the 90s, large amounts of capital was being infused into black politics. The title of the article is The Fruit of the Poison Tree, The Hard Rights Plan to Capture Newark, New Jersey. Now, what Glenn is talking about in that article was something that was so uh, fiery that it literally cost Cory Booker his first bid to run for mayor of Newark. What Glenn was outlining in that article was that large amounts of corporate money, particularly in the charter school industry, for the first time were supporting black political figures. And as a consequence that one of the things that was, we were seeing is that black politics was being infused with corporate money that we had not seen before from forces that people were not aware of. And Glenn was very early on noting this. And what he was saying is that Cory Booker represented an iteration of a new type of black politician at that time. One would say the first manifestation of the neoliberal black politician that came about, that was being flushed with this corporate cash and the litmus test that was being used to demonstrate whether or not these black politicians were in fealty with the corporate agenda was to the degree to which they were attached to the charter school agenda. And what Glenn demonstrates in that piece is that Booker was attached to the Manhattan Institute right-wing think tank and was flush with cash to infuse charter school money in black communities. Well, what Glenn eventually realized is that Cory Booker was part of a kind of petri dish of a test tube of what would end up being about five black politicians who of a certain ilk, a certain corporate neoliberal ilk who were flushed with cash, who were deeply, deeply being bankrolled by charter school, Betsy DeVos type agenda type institutions who were wedded to banking money financial services industries as well. Those politicians were Adrian Fenty, Barack Obama, Cory Booker, Harold Ford Jr., and Artur Davis. And what Glenn told me is that these guys, these five guys, were the trial balloon that were being charted out to determine who would be the next black president. And what is particularly noxious and dangerous is that these individuals would be able to use the fallacy of racial kinship to implement a corporate neoliberal agenda in blackface while black America would applaud and support them to the detriment of poor and working class black people particularly at a time where population demographics were showing that America was browning, 
and also we're becoming more ethnically diverse. So in other words, it was a very strategic point in American history that made the utility of this black face in high place important to the Lords of Capital. Well, what we have found is that with the rise of the Sanders agenda and the rise of the progressive flank of the Democratic Party, and there's a lot to criticize about the progressives. I know many of the fans of our show would say that they have not been really providing a return on their investment, so have you. But the, the larger point of the matter is, is that they do represent some level of contestation within the halls of Congress over certain agendas that more easily would have passed if they were not there, particularly around financial services, labor, and other things. Normally speaking, that's not always the case. With the rise of that Sanders faction, there's been a bit of a schism in the halls of Congress around what the agenda will be. And what we have found is, not surprisingly, because the black political class, which is most effectively manifested in the Congressional Black Caucus, has surrounded itself more effectively around the corporate agenda that has been financing it over time. One of the articles that I think that you will like that effectively demonstrates that is an article I wrote for Black Agenda Report as well. Is a piece called Thanks to the Congressional Black Caucus, Remy from House of Cards is Real. And I'll share that. And what that article shows is that over the last 40 years, the, the Congressional Black Caucus has been creating lobbyists out of its own institution that have worked as financial service industry lackeys that have helped bring the Congressional Black Caucus closer and closer and closer to the financial services industry. So what is called the conscious of the Congress, they literally call the Congressional Black Caucus the conscious of the Congress. What they call the conscious of the Congress is used as a tool of fealty to the financial services industry and that banks and financial services institutions use these former CBC staffers who become lobbyists to get advantages with the Congressional Black Caucus to basically implement corporate agenda that is not only more detrimental to black people, but to poor and working class people. One of the reasons why it's important for me to demonstrate is that there is a contention that we hear from some folk on the left or some nationalists who say, oh, we ain't got to worry about those black politicians. They ain't got no power. They can't do anything anyway. Actually, it's not that black politicians don't have any power. They don't have, they have power, except the power is leveraged in a way that disadvantages the majority of the black community because the power is used to represent the interests of capital that finance them. And it's not so much simply because they, quote unquote, have betrayed the community, it's because they're protecting their class interests. They're class enemy to the people that represent them, just like most politicians are to most people that represent them. So the point I'm trying to make up to this point is that what we're seeing is that the contemporary iteration of the black political class has been flush with finance capital. They have been fans of Israel and Zionists for many years, and they have been unwilling to challenge the forces that have been particularly dangerous to black America. So the question becomes, what makes Hakeem Jeff Jeffries the dangerous manifestation of all of these forces that we talked about? This is from an article that came out recently in Prospect called Succession. Hakeem Jeffries was the leading congressional recipient of hedge fund money in 2020. He banked $1.1 million from the financial sector, real estate interest, and insurance industry in 2019-2020 cycle. Every from, everyone from J.P. Morgan Chase to Goldman Sachs to Blackstone contributed. Contrib contributed. Zimmer, Zimmer Partners, a huge hedge fund, is one of Jeffrey's top donors in 2021. 
From the outset, he is governed with those interests at heart. While Democrats was, were reconsidering their coziness with Wall Street, he broke ranks to vote with the financial services world, including on high-profile profile measure literally written by Citigroup lobbyists in 2013 that killed Dodd-Frank's swap push-out rule, allowing banks to engage in risky trades backed a potential taxpayer-funded bailout. Reporting by the New York Times found that Citigroup's recommendations were reflected in more than 70 lines of the House Committee's 85-line bill. His former chief of staff, Cedric Grant, left Jeffrey's office for a job as, a, as an HR block lobbyist. So what this demonstrates, what this lets us know, is that not only is Hakeem Jeffries the typical run-of-the-mill Washington bagman politician, he is the exact replica of that trial balloon of Adrian Fenty, Cory Booker, Arthur Davis, Hal Ford Jr., and Barack Obama that Glenn Ford warned about. He is the contemporary manifestation. Understand something. Hakeem Jeffries has only been in Congress since 2012. Do you understand how rare it is for a congressman to be elevated to leadership in less than 10 years in the U.S. House of Representatives? You don't think that Jeffrey's ability to be a bagman for Wall Street and to be the largest hedge fund recipient and also a major fan of the charter school industry in terms of his donor cash dictates why he's been able to do that? You think it's an accident that at the time, and by the way, Hakeem Jeffries has been one of the members of the Congressional Black Caucus who's been willing to play the hardest of hardball with the Bernie Sanders faction of elected officials in Congress. So what I'm trying to explain today is that the same way in which my friend and mentor Glenn Ford felt that it was imperative upon him to warn his constituents that what the iteration of black Barack Obama represented in terms of black politics was dangerous to black America. The same way that I am warning working class, poor, black and brown, white and other people who are interested in economic justice in this country, that the fact that Hakeem Jeffries has been chosen as the leadership of the Democrats in the House, not only is just same as it ever was, ever was, I think it is perhaps one of the most dangerous iterations of American political direction that we've seen in modern history. And I think it's something that we on the left need to confer about how to challenge and how to fight because he has already made himself an open enemy to us and I think it is our job to find ways to make him an open enemy to our agenda if we're really interested in changing the status quo. And at that point, I'll take I'll be open for questions. All right. Do we have some questions for Pascal? Ah. M2, sir, do you have questions? Um, I think you made such a great point. Uh, that he was really fast-tracked to leadership. It was very uh, monarchical, the way it was handled, if that's a word. He was an heir to Nancy Pelosi, and he was handed this office. You're right, you're right. We should have been much, much, much more suspicious. We do have a question from Shirley here. Pascal, do you think Hakeem has the potential to be more dangerous to black people than Barack Obama? 
Yes, because he can be in power much longer and he'll have more power over time. Mm. In that congressional position, you don't think he'll try yes. to move up he the ranks? Yes, he can be a Speaker of the House for 30 years. But you don't think he'll try to move up the ranks and try to get a presidency? I think that he, I think that, I don't know. I don't know. Don't I don't know, think, right? yeah, I mean, I think he's the guy who got, who's got more interested in effective Hakeem Jeffries is very smart. He's not stupid at all. I think he's more interested in effective use of power than symbolic use of power. Uh, I was reading something. I think it might have been something that uh, Christine Ducelli, uh was reading and posted, or maybe it was something else I was reading, uh, on the ideas of the end of feudalism and capitalism maybe it was even something that uh alex aculey was talking about um you know there's a kind of and this does dovetail in what you're talking about uh techno feudalism conversation that we had some time ago with Giannis varifakis and i know that you're not the biggest proponent of that idea that we're heading into a new feudalism this is kind of what capitalism looks like and if you look at you know what feudalism looked like and what capitalism was to feudalism um as far as ending feudalism representative democracy in general hasn't it always protected um the lords of capital that's a very good question, Jason. Is that I, I mean, I think that you could make the argument that in the liberal democratic framework, mm-hmm. that the nature of the institutions have always protected those with power. Some would argue that as long as we've had governance as an institution, regardless of the manifestation of form, that the ultimate goal of governance is to protect the elites of whatever the institutions of those societies are. And it causes the question, right? Are our anarchist brothers correct when they say that any form of governance or hierarchy in and of itself is oppressive? That's something that is one of the mainstays of anarchist thought. You know, it's just like there's no reason to fight to improve systems of hierarchy because systems of hierarchy are always going to be oppressive regardless of what you do. And the goal is to actually delegitimate the hierarchy. And sometimes I ponder that, you know. Because it's a fair question, because I don't see we have many examples of history where concentrations of collective economic power and governance don't lead to exploitation by those who are the lords of capital. I mean, I ask that question because I think sometimes we get uh, caught up in racial democracy, which is something that we've definitely talked about several times on this show for the last couple of years. Um since we had that extremely illuminating conversation with Preston Smith, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's another episode we should re-air as we we're talking last night about re-airing some episodes that that Preston Smith episode was, was so uh, good talking about the ideas of racial democracy that when we, when we talk about, you know, LA for example, and how we had that leaked phone call, which is now being investigated by police to see who leaked it. Um, I'll tell you off air, but people already know who leaked it. But bigger than that, that was a discussion that was leaked from just one racial faction of power. And there's more in a city like L.A., just like there's more in a city like New York, you know, anywhere in America where you have, you know, people grouped off racially, um, you're going to have racial representation. So is the black political class any more nefarious than the latin political class that's a very good question i I love your questions tonight i don't what particularly makes the black political class noxious to me Mm -hmm. is not that it's shocking that politicians with power do do stuff at the behest of capital or those who run things right Mm -hmm. It's the charade of racial kinship politics that's not noxious to me. It's that black people are deluded into believing 
that they should support these people because they're the first black this, or this person was in the civil rights movement, or this person was in my fraternity or sorority, or this person was went to my black church. Oh, I know such and such. They go from they, they their fathers in my Masonic my Masonic hall, or such and such would never betray the community. It's the fallacy of racial kinship politics that I think makes it more noxious, combined with the fact that the illusion that blackness equals something progressive mm. makes also whites unable to believe that this XYZ person could be a corporate sellout because, oh, he was in the movement. There's no way that XYZ would be down with the JP Morgan agenda. Interesting. Um, so how then do you feel? And I had this conversation with our mutual friend to Maybe we all three had it at one point in time as well. The kind of renaming of, well, I don't even know what you would call it. The redefining of the term coon now pretty much means a black man that adopts quote unquote white traits. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous, right? Because there yeah. was a time in which a black there was a time where a black man who could effectively effectively and eloquently communicate mm-hmm. was someone who was looked upon looked up upon, who was looked up to, who was like, oh, he you know, he represents himself well, he carries himself well. And now and I would argue that's probably a large reason why the, the coon thing is now being used or dispatched to anyone who is, you know, doesn't use uh uh, ebonics or colloquialism, colloquial African American vernacular English, is a consequence of the popularity of hip hop in terms of normalizing a certain aesthetic that's considered what is considered a sign of cool. So this is kind of cool pose posture that becomes a rep to become begins to rep to replace what was normally believed to be the aesthetic of choice of what is considered appreciated appreciated. Well, I bring that up because you have people like Clarence Thomas, who gets called a coon, and it's like, well, why can't you just call him a black conservative or a black nationalist? Like, why can't you call him one of those names? Why does he have to be a coon? And then you kind of change the meaning of coon, and you now have coons (laughs) that we talk about that are coons cooning it up. And that doesn't get called out the same way because of, to me, because of what you're explaining right now, kind of the popularity of hip hop, making some of this coonish behavior like A-OK, like everybody forgets Blondie's Rapture video. (laughs) No, absolutely. No, no, I agree. It definitely becomes more. I think that what has happened, right, is that there has been a complication of racial caricature in the post-civil rights era because of popular culture in the Mm -hmm. way. It's become such a a bar uh, a I wouldn't say a barrier, but the barometer of what is considered to be normative black culture is that in that black people unfortunately are in a position where what you see on TV and what you hear on the radio is deemed to be their culture, as opposed to the the the, the culture of RCA, Sony, or, or 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 whatever other industry that's manufacturing that musical culture. It's supposed to be the culture of black people. When I'm asking, well, where do black people get the democratic capacity to choose to make that their culture in the first place? But what's what's funny, like, you know, when we talk about the culture industry in general, um, even the creation of rock and roll was not created by young people for young people. It was created by much older people with an idea of, I think this is what these young people want. And you can say the same thing about the culture industry, right? You know, Bertram, you know, Cooper has that great article, who gets to write for black people. And, you know, these Stanford educated, you know, upper middle class, even black people writing these inner city stories. It's just fantasy or, or, or some sick form of fan fiction in a way. And that becomes black culture. You know, what's that show that just can't got got uh, ended its run on HBO? Insecure, you know, perfect example. 
Why does that become black culture? Who decides these things? I wasn't at the meeting. I think Toussaint was at the meeting. Oh no, no, I do not have I do not have a blue check, so I was not <laughs> oh, at the meeting. Oh wow, shots fired! Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm with you. I mean, who define the the culture as diverse as any other culture, right? Well, I want to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. I want to ask both of you a question. When are black people going to be tired of having the first black X Y Z A B C one two three? Never. Like, when does that stop? Never. Never. It's Never. a win. It's a moral victory. And where you have no political victories, you devolve into moral victories. And there's always a racial moral victory that you can win because, you know, it's kind of simplistic, good versus evil narratives. I mean, that's kind of the main, the main thesis of the kayfabe documentary. What happens when facts are kind of devolved into overly simplistic ways to view the world? And you have a deep, I just want to to quote this, college-educated black folk with insecurities about their privileged class position project this insecurity into the ready hands of the culture industry. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Check. Yeah. Shirley says when there are no more firsts to be had. Do you really believe that, Shirley? There's always a first. There's always it's a, a first. Yeah, because that's the situation we're in. It's the it's accepting the crabs in the barrel metaphor as being real. That we gotta try to help one get out and we gotta do this one by one. Mm-hmm. And eventually we'll have the numbers. Then we'll get that. Like, that's not how that works. But okay. It's, it's the idea of getting there. Like, you know, who is the emancipatory subject that we're trying to free or liberate when people talk about black liberation in 2022? Like, I'm asking the question, literally, who are we trying to liberate? Mm. Are we trying to liberate working class black people? Are we trying to liberate Kamala Harris's sorority sisters? You know what? Do, Do these people want to be liberated? That's a bigger question to ask. What does liberation what does look like? You, thank you. What does it look? Does it look like middle management? For a lot of people, it looks like middle management. Like I will go back to you know what I said last night about that episode of The Office where Dwight doesn't want to take the metaphorical was it red pill to to know how the matrix works. Matrix works because he's like, well, I'm happy now. So again. Who are people trying to liberate and do these people want to be liberated? Do they realize that they are in quote unquote shackles? Are people still, let me ask you this question, Pascal, and I'll ask this question to everybody watching the show. Do you think people still think that the inner city colony theory holds water in 2022? Oh, there's definitely people who believe that. We know people who believe that. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yeah. People do still believe that. We know people who believe that. Mm-hmm. Do those people live in said colony or do they pontificate about said colony? Well, I don't want to fire shots. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> this is called the Mau Mau Hour, you know what I mean? Well, I don't want to Mau Mau anyone. <laughs> like I, 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 Toussaint, do those people live in said colony or do they pontificate about said colony? They pontificate about said colony. Perhaps some of them used to live in said colony, like uh, J.D. Vance or something. Mm. Um, but then well, I- they, they've crossed an imaginary line where they end up making a movie about how much they hate their mom. Mm. And because they no longer live there. Mm. Damn. He trashed his mom in that movie. Like Eminem? He pulled an Eminem. Uh, yeah. Pam Davis, I won't say anything bad about you. You're a saint. She suggested that I should be a mod. I have nothing bad to say about the woman. Dr. Claude just dropped a bomb. Mm-hmm. They're invested in the witness to suffering industrial complex. 
Shout out to Dr. Paul. Oh, He's a doctor. He's a doctor. He's a doctor, honey. <laughs> Gotta watch him. He's a doctor. I mean, I, I think this is an interesting conversation because, um, I, I, I think when you said that line about people look at black people as progressive all the time, that's mm-hmm. how people always say things like they betrayed us. So and so betrayed us. It's like, did they? Like, isn't maybe they always wanted to do this thing? How is that betrayal? What kind of betrayal do you like? What it what? The the but the thing is though the belief that they betrayed. First of all, we have to analyze a couple of things in that statement. Why is why do black folk believe that there is a we or an us in the mm-hmm. first place? Yeah. And number two, why do you believe that somebody took? an oath at the like, you know, the giant tree that said, we all in here together and we're going to get to the promised land. The greatest ever gave us nothing. (laughs) (laughs) The, The greatest thing about the movie Black Panther and the rise of the superheroes of different genders and, and, and races is especially with Black Panther it paints this magical narrative of a unified African nation where even the warring tribes kind of get along. And there is a tree, right? There's kind of like a tree of life, if you will, where you pledge your allegiance. And to talk about that in a negative light, I caught a lot of heat for the last video essay about black exploitation because there's tons of people that really hold that cinema very dear to their hearts and it was almost as if they didn't see it as something that was dear to my heart as well i grew up watching those movies i walked five miles to blockbuster and saved my lunch money to rent the mac and coffee and (laughs) and, you know sugar hill you know, you name it. And I still watch them to this day. We're going to watch Willie Dynamite <laughs> on on movie night. Um, but people are really, really, really um, married to these kind of narratives and the kind of horrible thing about Black Panther. And I, and I watched in Spanish um, a Black Panther Lexus commercial. Oh, where, my gosh. Yep. <laughs> Where the black women of black people, because remember, it's it's also coming out in this era of it's not just black people, but we're going to uplift black female voices. We're going to give you. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. in the most advanced fictional society, the most technologically advanced fictional society on the fictional earth of Marvel Comics. 616. The 616. Thank you. Thank you, M. Toussaint, for calling the 616. You're your G yeah. for that. Um, <laughs> they have spears. These bald Africans. So you, you know they're African because they're bald. They have spears. They ride on the backs of animals. They always have to fight in the open in some sort of jungle or Sahara-like setting. So you know they're African. But yet and still, Negroes are going to these movies in dashikis. I mean, that's why I think this episode is is really important to kind of get over this idea that, A, these people are betraying you, and B, there is racial kinship. Pascal, your people have your last name? Is that how you feel? (laughs) No, I mean, this, this... The question becomes, when are we going to stop believing that black people are so damaged that they need to have all these emotional, intellectual salves placed mm. on their consciousness to mm. heal them from the wounds of the, the vicissitudes of racial history, as opposed to dealing with the fact that what black people suffer from is poverty disproportionately, but not all of them, because we still have people like Hatim Jeffries who are able to get paid by J.P. Morgan to implement charter school agendas. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been doing this, we've been playing this game since 
the 60s and it's going nowhere. I think that's part of the we made it um, mm. and, and what we were discussing earlier. We'll know that we're, we're there when there is no part of the black being that is dirty and, and full of sin and deserving of terrible things that have happened to it. David Russell says something interesting. He said, I think people are damaged or they wouldn't be into this shit. I used to think that way. I don't believe people are damaged. I think this is a class project because you don't hear the working class people focusing on this stuff. This is college proximate Negroes who pumped this garbage. Same thing with Afro-pessimism. I mean, you're not going to you know, go in the hood and hear some cats spouting off, you know, <laughs> The honorable fucking Frank Wilderson. Either they don't know, don't show, or don't care nothing <laughs> they don't about care the about ghetto. Frank teaching. <laughs> they don't care about Afro pessimism. But you know, you you go to the right middle class financial firm, and I'm sure there's some cats there that are like, you know, Frank said it. <laughs> He's right though. Wait, Kevin Sinoko just had a great point. Could bring him back up, uh, M. Tucson. Okay, one second. Yeah. As ahead, someone man. who's navigating in aspirational, upwardly mobile young black spaces, the sense of alienation, whether real or imagined, is central to black self-conception. Pascal is right. Wow. wow. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin, you are making us sad. I hope you're coming mm-hmm. to New York, Kevin, so we can meet in real life. Make a sad in person. Yeah, make a sad in person. <laughs> no, we'll cheer you up. Me and Tucson will cheer you up. We'll give you a black cheer up. <laughs> we'll double up on you with blackness. I mean, I remember what those spaces were like when I was at Square. You know, there was a handful of black people, and it was it was odd that black people wouldn't sit with other black people. Hmm. Is it? I was told that it will take a Negro going to a a historically black college for them to not feel that black people needed to be together when they were in other spaces. Interesting. You know what I felt like, Tucson and and Pascal? I know you went to some schools that had, you know, little black people as well. It felt like they felt sitting with me. And I also didn't have the right color badge because I was a contract worker. They felt like sitting with me would have lowered their social credit score. Wow. Well, you're not on the right tier. You have the wrong color badge. Yeah, there was also that. There was a wrong color badge. But uh, one of my friends that worked there that had the right color badge that is also black, he works in the St. Louis office, called me the other day. And I remember when he would be in town, um, we would do festivals and stuff together. When he would be in town, we would sit together at the lunch table and just laugh our asses off all the time at how black dudes would just, just ignore us. Almost like if you don't see them, they're they're not there. They don't exist. I mean, I get, I get it. To me. What'd you say? That feels very liberal to me. Oh, man. Yeah. You should have been there too, Tucson. Then it would have been. According to Champagne Sharks, there is a blue check culture, mm-hmm. and these blue checks seem to have more in common with each other than they do of anyone from their respective groups. So I can mm. kind of see them, you know, shutting you out to have their little click. Your collar is blue. You are not one of us. I mean, in the tech sector, too, because there is so much contract work. There's a li- there's some truth to that. But I mean, I'd, you'd have to see it. You'd have to experience it. Well, I'd like to ask you guys a question. With the fact that the Progressive Caucus has expanded, we now have Hakeem Jeffries, who's going to be leadership. We have the, the Republicans who have the majority in the House. What kind of political constellation is on the horizon with this kind of cauldron of factors that we see in front of us that you guys can see happening? 
How does this play out? I mean, do they use the congressional black carcass to pressure? Wait, <laughs> it is what it is. It is what it is. Do they, no, use, the <laughs> do they use them to pressure the pro- progressive caucus? That can happen. That can happen pretty easily. And if uh, if the congressional black carcass is really into Hakeem Jeffries being a first and wanting to support them, they might do what they did with Obama and just kind of give him a blank check. I I think that's going to happen because he comes from them. Yeah. But what big things are you expecting on the horizon? I don't think that they're going to promote anything big policy-wise. I think it's going to be a factor of what are they going to be able to effectively neutralize in the long term. Hakeem has said he does not see himself bending the knee to the Dem socks or socks, period. No socks. There's no power there. That's why. I mean, mean, it'll be easy to beat them up with the Congressional Black Caucus, who are seen as progressive, the most progressive. Wasn't the Congressional Black Caucus people that put together the George Floyd crime bill? Whatever that was police accountability bill that asked for more money for police and didn't really do anything. They're kneeling with dashikis. I don't think it ever got passed. Shirley says the next two years, the loonies in the GOP will have hearings on made-up BS. There's, there's going to be some truth to that. Yeah, but I mean, what does it really mean at the end of the day? Because I think what you're seeing in the GOP is they're trying to figure out who they are, and a lot of people are distancing themselves from the failure that was Trump. Mitt Romney, who's still a pretty powerful figure in GOP politics, really distances himself from Trump as a dignified, quote unquote, dignified politician. Mm-hmm. And I think that Trump faction is the faction that lost a lot of races. You said this last night, Pascal. It should have been a blowout because the Democrats got nothing for anyone and they ended child's tax care. Correct. So, you know, the nothing burger that's been the Democratic Party still didn't lose as much ground as everybody was talking about. And I think it goes to show that people are too disconnected from real people to really know what real people actually care about or what they vote about. People really underestimated January 6th. For a lot of people, January 6th was very frightening. Mm-hmm. The idea of fascism for a lot of people has been a rallying cry since the Cold War. And I don't just mean fascism in the Nazi sense. People look at, you know, the USSR as fascist. Well, you know, when, in this, in the, the late 70s in North Carolina, when those Klan members uh, killed those communists that were organizing um, non-union factory workers in the garment industry, I believe textile industry, um, which is still very non-union. The first thing that one of them said was, I fought in a war to kill communists. So I I don't really think people understand the level of, of how most Americans, and it's not just your grandparents and your parents, most Americans view communism, socialism, and fascism. It's all the same ism to them. It's authoritarianism, totalitarianism. Yeah. It's all To them, it's always going to end up totalitarian rule. Horseshoe, horseshoe theory. Mm. It's, uh, somehow, magically, these guys look alike. It's like these people want me to have health care. These people want to kill a whole other group of people. They're the same. Exactly the same. Exactly. Obviously. I have a question here Mm -hmm. from Vancouver. What would be the best way to explain to others how Jeffries isn't going to do anything for black people? Tell them that he's Barack Obama from Brooklyn. Damn. 
Okay. Well, for those that get it, that works. <laughs> Some people are still in love with Obama just, and I'm his beautiful rock, family. Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Except, can we call Hakeem Jeffries from now on Barack from the block? Barack from the block. Oh, rough. Kevin Sanko asks, given the power of the culture industry to reinforce the legitimacy of the black power class, how can the black left challenge this narrative in the cultural discourse, if at all? Ooh, that's a good question. That's a Kevin, man. Shout Mm -hmm. out to Kevin. Kevin, new fan of the show. Shout out to Kevin. Kevin, hold on, Kevin, because you're killing it tonight, Kevin. Here it comes! Well, the question that you're going to ask is that who is the black left? And I think that part of the problem that we have, right, is that we have factions even within the black left. We have ideological members of the black left who who have certain values that they adhere to, and we can't be mad at them for that. And there are others who have different opinions. And I think strategically we have to decide, as all of us challenge capitalism, imperialism, sexism, and racism, how we are going to be able to come together and put together our put aside our our ideological differences to challenge this 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 monster and instead of kneecapping each other. If you are a revolutionary nationalist and your politics adhere to a certain time and space in black politics, if I'm a black socialist who is more interested not so much in nationalism, but so much more so towards a working class agenda, there's no reason why our politics should not be able to come together to be able to challenge it over our hierarchy. And I think until we do that, the ability to challenge the cultural narrative is not going to happen. I think we're going to be stuck circle jerking and basically pointing things and taking shots at one another until we can come together and realize like there's no reason for us to have these antagonisms. You just lost the left. Can't be talking that truth. <laughs> there's too much truth in that, man. You can't do that. There's seven black leftists. Seven. <laughs> like seven of us. I, 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 Kevin, I think what happens in this moment of kind of defeat is that people... Tell me what you think, Pascal. This is just my opinion. I think there becomes this moment of um, retreating to identity. I think we talked a little bit about this last night. And that's where a lot of people are going to get their their moral victories or their victories is, is in the identity realm. So it's, it's hard. He's the uh, first black speaker of the house. First well, he's not speaker yet. You know, elite capture. <laughs> you know, that's to me where the colored conversation goes. Isn't elite capture about blue check marks too? Pretty much. Wonderful. Beautiful right. people. <laughs> Is the frame of politics from a racial narrative a politics of capture in and of itself? Is it not? Yeah, I mean, that book was silly because, I mean, Booker T, you could really talk about Booker T, which he doesn't really. I mean, you read it. No, he doesn't talk about Booker T. He believes that the concepts of capture, the elite capture starts in contemporary America with the foundation world, which is ridiculous. I mean, and he talks about the greatness of the book club that met a couple times. Right, Kombahachi River Collective. Yeah, so... You know, if if that's where cats get are getting all fired up about, like I got a lot of personal messages, but why don't you get this cat on the show? Like, I don't really want to. There's so much of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it's that people don't know where we stand, or they think that we're black and we should be in the sandbox together, just play. But that's the whole point of this episode, right? This idea of racial kinship. And it's like, well, these people are all radical. It's like, well, I don't know what radical means in 2022. You know, when we talk about coons and everybody wants to go like Clarence Thomas, Thomas Sowell, you know, I don't know, Glenn Lowry, whatever. Those are coons to people. I think about 
the posturing that I still see people have. And it just looks like that episode, that scene in Forrest Gump where he runs into the Black Panther Party. And it's just Fill angry. What did you say? Fill us in on that. You don't, don't remember, remember the episode? Or the episode. You don't remember that scene in Forrest Gump where he runs in and he follows Jenny and she's in there with the Black Panther Party and it's just a bunch of dudes angry, yelling in turtlenecks and fucking leather coats. About how they're gonna just kill white people. <laughs> I'm the only person that watched Forrest Gump. The movie made eight hundred million dollars, and I'm the only one that watched it. Radical means you do your hair like Jay Z. <laughs> the way he does it now. Basquiat dreads. Yeah, the the, the fake Basquiat. That is not a radical. <laughs> But it will make it will make people stare at your hair when you go to work, and that will attract microaggressions, and this would make you a victim, and that makes you radical. Wow. Yeah. We have so, a very serious question here. What about politicians who basically grew up in the Puerto Rican community, like <laughs> J.R. Biden? <laughs> Like Joe Robinette Biden. Joseph Robinette. I was was watching about what's going on in Puerto Rico with uh, the, was it Luma? The the private uh, power company? Ooh, it's so evil. So evil. I I feel like the only people that should talk about colonialism is Puerto Ricans. I mean, we don't hear from them enough. No. We're trying to get Puerto Ricans on this show for the longest time. I'll sounds work like, on it. Sounds like a racism. I've been trying to get these Puerto Ricans on the I've show. I've been trying to get some Puerto Ricans on the show. These damn Puerto Ricans. <laughs> like herding cats. Shirley is right. Jay-Z is not radical. Jay-Z is a class enemy. Jay-Z's hair is radical. You're missing posted, the point. Jay-Z's, Jay-Z's hair is a class enemy. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like his Basquiat dreads? Not really. Oh, that man worked so hard to, to just not even let his hair grow an eighth of an inch for decades. And now, all of a sudden, he wants to be Basquiat. Pascal it's the equivalent Cal- of a perm for a lot of dudes. Just keep cutting your hair really you are low. Go in there right now. Can I tell you? I am. I'm going to tell Ooh. you a true story before we go. It's It's been an hour. I had a nightmare last night. That a black dude broke in my house and he had a jerry curl and a shotgun. Oh, you were just dreaming you were watching like, you know, Boys, in the, called? Boys in the Hood. Boys in the Hood. <laughs> <laughs> he looked like Lonzo from the World Class Wrecking Crew and he broke in the house oh and he was walking around with a shotgun and I couldn't scream. Oh, man. I don't know what that means, but it means you have got to attack the brother within, my brother. <laughs> oh no, my brother! <laughs> All right, Pascal. End this on a serious note. I think that we need to be more careful and be more aware of what's going on in terms of Congress and the House in the near future and look for the way in which race is going to be used to obfuscate criticisms of Hakeem Jeffries in the immediate future and give him a pass and make it seem like he can't be criticized because he's the first black X, Y, Z. Strom McCallum says Bobby Rush. Mm. Mm. Well, on that note, thank you guys for checking this out. Thank you guys for the questions. Um, we will be back next month for patrons. Movie night's coming up. We won't be able to do it this week as Jeremy Salmon, our movie night the guy that puts it all together for us, won't be able to do it this week. But I believe next week we'll be doing it. Double feature movie night. We'll be watching Pascal's favorite, Willie Dynamite, with Tucson's favorite, Life is Hot in Cracktown. Uh, you just lost the laugh. Oh well. It's an autobiography. 
<laughs> Thank you guys, and we are out. out. If I tell any secrets of the Mao Mao, this oath will kill me. If I am called in the night and refuse to come, this oath will kill me. If I see anyone steal white man's property, I must help him. I must hide what he gives me and say nothing, or this oath will kill me. The whole system in this country, the economic system, is such that uh, jobs are scarce. Automation is limiting jobs. It's, it's, it's decreasing jobs. And uh, if autom as automation eliminates the job opportunities, legislation will not create job opportunities. All it will do is bring about friction and hostility between the two races. You, you see, there will be no uh, progressive revival if black uh, folks are not deeply involved in it. I will obey all orders of the Mao Mao.